Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. <laughs> This is Reasons to be Cheerful, live. Welcome to the stage, Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello. Look at this. This is nuts. It is nuts. Just look at it. It's beautiful and it's a nightclub. It is beautiful. Who here thought they would ever see Ed Miliband in a nightclub? (laughs) Not me, definitely. When was the last time you were in a nightclub? I I couldn't really remember. I was trying to think. I think it may have been... Were you in a K-hole? Has it affected your memory? It may have been the the world transformed after party at Labour Party conference. (laughs) You were there till all hours, kebab afterwards? No, no, no. They they wanted me to go on stage and dance and I thought that was a bad idea, actually. (laughs) I think it's a good idea, no, no. and who knows where this evening will take us. Mm, um, should we talk about what we're talking about today? Yes. I'm really enthusiastic about this subject. We are talking about empire and empire in schools, and isn't it time that we taught people about the British Empire in schools? And I want to give credit. I'm actually wondering whether he might be here, but we didn't check in advance. Mike Hill. Is Mike Hill in the room? No. Uh, Mike... <laughs> Mike Hill is a teacher in South London, and he said uh, he sent us an email about a month ago saying, you've got to cover the British Empire and why it's not properly taught in schools because it is the background to Brexit. And then uh, basically this totally struck a chord with me because I don't know about you, but when I was uh, in school, which was some time ago, I-, I ended up knowing more about the Roman Empire than the British Empire. Were you taught about the British Empire? Clueless. I- Clueless. I feel embarrassed about how little I know. And yeah. so I think it is a really interesting subject We've got Gaminda Bambra, who is Professor of Postcolonial and Decolonial Studies at the University of Sussex, and Jason Todd, who's a lecturer in history at the University of Oxford, to talk about why this is such an important subject, why we don't talk about it properly, what the history of the empire was, how we should teach it in schools, and all of that. Yeah, and what the consequences are. And what the consequences are, exactly. Fucking Jacob Rees-Mogg's imperial measurements. Exactly. And then after that, I'm so excited by this. We are joined by just one of my favourite comedians. He is brilliant. He won Newcomer at the, the Edinburgh Fringe Festival a few years ago. Then he went back the following year and he won the, the main award. He is so great and it's a real treat to have him with us tonight. John Kearns is yeah. going to be joining us. So, yeah. so that's what's happening. Good. Should we talk about our reasons to be cheerful? Yeah. Why don't you go first, actually? I met Zippy yesterday. <laughs> I seem to know what Zippy is, which is interesting. You, you even you know what a Zippy is. Just about. You're pretty good. If it's from the 70s or 80s, you're fine. If it's, it's, from got the the 90s... I, it's got the ITV problem. Right, yeah, I wasn't yeah. really a lot allowed to watch ITV as a child, you see. <laughs> uh, commercials and advertisements and things. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> anyway, what was it like meeting Zippy? It was, it was incredible, you know, uh, for, for any, uh, any millennials in the audience who don't remember But Zippy. they seem to remember. They had a sort of... Do most people remember Zippy from Rainbow? Yeah. 
Yeah. When did it stop being on Rainbow? Not sure. So it's, I think it probably crosses a, a few generations. Yeah. But uh, it, it, I was doing a radio show and Zippy came in to, to be interviewed, or at least the man inside Zippy came in to be interviewed. And he brought the puppet with him and I was so excited. Uh, and he got it out uh, and I had my photo taken with him. But here's the weird thing. So Zippy... I mean, part of British history, part yeah. of British pop culture. Yeah. How do you think he's transported from one place to another? No idea. In an IKEA bag. <laughs> like the guy just he brought him on the tube in an are IKEA you sort of bag. Out, are you outraged? Yes, he should have his own special suitcase. Yeah. What, what kind of suitcase? It's not the IKEA. It just IKEA. didn't seem fitting for, right, for Zippy. Right. So I that's, see. But my reason for Jeffrey is that I met Zippy yesterday. Well, that, what, what is yours? Before we get on to mine, I just, did I talk to you about Peak? Yes. So I've got an, I've had a sort of interesting. Can I just have a look at the audience before you start on this? I, I think you might be uh, onto an on-starter with this. I think maybe this isn't the demographic, but we can we can try. Okay, well let me ask you a slightly different question. Who, if I said to you jump the shark, put your hand off, you know what I was talking about, and put your hand off, you wouldn't know what I was talking about. See, that is really that is interesting. interesting. Well, maybe isn't maybe it? you're going to be fine. Okay, and if I said to you peak, I, I'm not like talking about. You know, a mountain uh, peak. Would you know what? I, would you know what that meant? Oh, interesting. Just what out of interest, peak? what do you think it means? Yeah. Awful. 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 Yes. Apparently, it means awful in youth parlance. Is that? That's right. Ed, isn't I've, it? <laughs> I've, I've told I you not to no, hang around the skate park. I would have. It looks no, creepy. I would have had no idea that the, what peak meant. I mean, when did peak become a thing? Anyway, no, only she knows. Nobody when did it become it? a thing? But you see, Jump the Shark is interesting because I think Jump the Shark is the old version of Peak. I was trying to explain this to my children last night. Um, and Jump the Shark is... Has anyone heard of a programme called Happy Days? Right. In Happy Days, and I was reading all about this on Wikipedia last night to my children who were a bit, getting a bit bored, actually. Were they uh, saying, Dad, isn't it time for bed? Yeah, yeah. Uh, basically, the Fonz jumps a shark. In, in Happy Days. On water skis, right? On water skis. In a, it's like an inflatable shark in, a, in Series 5. And this was seen as kind of not really... It was the moment it went downhill from it, there onwards. It, I mean, actually, that's mythology because although it, was, it, it got 30 million viewers like after that, but it was seen as the moment when it culturally went downhill. So jumping the shark means a, a, something that was at its best and then goes downhill, but it also tries to attract... Are you kind of looking at the time or something? Uh, uh, something that tries to attract attention. Anyway, I just thought I'd tell you that because I think that there is a really interesting kind of generational divide between peak and jump the shark. We're going to take questions from the audience <laughs> on happy days. Right. Shall I, tell you, shall I tell you my reason to be cheerful? So my reason to be cheerful is almost as sort of culturally highbrow as yours. Yes. Which is that I went to see a Shakespeare last night with my children, but it is Shakespeare with a difference. Because it is sort of Shakespeare, it was in, on an industrial estate, which immediately sounds sort of exciting, uh, The Tempest. And it's done by this, I, I, I know you're laughing, but honestly, I would really recommend you go and see this. It's by something called the Creation Theatre Company. And it is, I mean, I don't want to sound like a Philistine here, but sometimes if you go to Shakespeare, you know, you feel like... Bored? Yeah, bored. Uh, uh, <laughs> and this is, it's basically... I mean, to, to tell you that it ended up in a meatpacking factory with us chasing a zombie round the meatpacking factory gives you a sense of what it's like. Why were people <laughs> with camera phones not putting this on Twitter? You chasing zombies around yeah, a meatpacking factory? Yeah, no, that factory. is true. Anyway, I really... If you've got time, they're doing it. It's, it's basically a, it's a suburb of Oxford on an industrial estate, but don't let that put you off. Uh, it's a creation theatre company, and it is the Tempest... And it will be absolutely memorable. My children who are 10 and 8, they absolutely loved it. They thought it was the best thing ever. Even more than you explaining what Jump Even the Shark what, was. Well, actually, was, as we were queuing up, I was explaining what Jump the Shark was. <laughs> so there you go. So that's my reason to be cheerful. But I really recommend it. It's, and it's, didn't you end up on stage? And I ended up on stage at the wedding of Ferdinand and Miranda. <laughs> uh, because it's sort of audience participation and all of that jazz. And like... This guy brought me up on stage, which was slightly embarrassing. And I also pretended to be a zombie at one point, And then I sort of got... Can you show us? No, no, no. I got sort of humiliated because then I had to sort of say that I wasn't really a zombie. <laughs> but anyway, if you like audience participation, this is the thing. Is <laughs> the thing. Who was looking at you and thinking, that zombie looks a lot like Ed Miliband. Yeah, I'm exactly. not sure that he's a real exactly. zombie. Exactly. Uh, will you welcome Gaminda Bambra and Jason Todd?
That, ladies and gentlemen, is the map. The British Empire in 1921. Now, Govinda, you are going to tell us, this is like the basic foundational moment of the discussion where we all get taught, if we weren't taught in school, what Britain was, basically, in 1921. Well... I guess the first thing to understand is that Britain doesn't become all the bits in red all at the same time. And so before you have Britain, you have the kingdoms of England and Scotland. They enter into union in 1707 through an act of union. Both England and Scotland have colonies prior to that act, including their close neighbours, as well as colonies further afield in Virginia and the West Indies. So at the very moment that Britain comes into being, it already has colonies, it already has imperial intentions, and so it comes into being as an empire. And then over the next two centuries, it goes round invading and colonising much of the rest of the world. So that by the height of empire, by 1921, that's pretty much the peak of of empire. Britain has Peak. control over <laughs> but one, not in that sense. <laughs> one quarter of the earth's land territory. It governs over one fifth of the world's population, including extracting taxes from that population, and it governs over one in two of the world's Muslims by 1921. And Britain got very, very rich off, yeah, off the back of I was of about those. to say that, yeah. yeah. Yes, there was a report written in 1885. Um, you were looking, you told us before, you were looking at the national accounts from 1885 yes. the other night, which I think just, is, just, just that shows fun. what a serious person you are. <laughs> uh. It was a report titled The General Statistics of British Empire. Yeah. And in there, Richard Temple, who was the secretary of the Royal Statistical Society, he outlined the fact that in 1885, Britain had a national income of £203 million. Of that, £84 million came from taxes and resources in the UK. £79 million came from taxes and resources from India. And £40 million came from the rest of the colonies. So the national wealth that's under the control of the national government in Westminster, more than half of that wealth comes from the colonies. So every institution is Britain, is funded by the wealth of empire. Okay, and then the other thing that is incredibly fascinating is this bailout thing. Mm -hmm. Tell us about the bailout, because you think the bailout of 2008 was expensive and like a big deal. Tell us about the bailout of the slave owners. So, in, I mean, one of the things often when we're talking about empire, we talk about slavery. And one of the first things then is how Britain abolished the slave trade. And it's like, yes, Britain did abolish the slave trade, but after about 200 years of profiting from it. And the profits from the slave trade didn't end with the end of the slave trade, because the only reason slave owners in Britain agreed to the abolition of the slave trade was because they would be compensated. So... Just to underline, it wasn't the people who had been enslaved who were compensated for their loss of liberty. It was the British slave owners, people who owned other people who were compensated. And they were compensated to a tune of £20 million in 1833. That's the equivalent of £17 billion today, which, to put it another way, is 40% of GDP. 40% of GDP 40% then, of GDP was, then 20 million. was £20 million. So 40% of our total national yes. income went in compensation. And there wasn't enough money in the country to pay people. And so what the government did was raise bonds. So those bonds were raised, the slave owners were paid. And we, that is British taxpayers, both in Britain and the colonies, only finished off paying that bond in 2015. So if you've paid tax prior to 2015, you have paid compensation to people who owned other people. And that was still being paid. Mm -hmm. So it was being paid to the to the ancestors to the of the borrower. Of course the borrowing. So the money was borrowed yeah, by yeah. the government. So we've been paying through our taxes to the paying back of that bond and the interest on that bond. Talk to us about but we were talking earlier about this question of having an empire and being an empire. So one of the things is we often talk about Britain having an empire. And why I think that's a problematic way of talking about it is because it suggests that there was something called Britain separate from empire. And empire was what happened over there. It wasn't what happened here, and it didn't shape our institutions. I would want to, us to think about Britain having been an empire. And in part, I think that's important, because if we think about the debates that have been happening over the last few years around what it means to be British, about who belongs, who has the right to be here, so much of that debate is organised around whether you can demonstrate historical connections to the nation state. 
But if Britain's never been a nation, it's always been an empire, then the people who have the right to be here and right to claim the benefits of being here are people who have historical connections to the empire. Well, you know, so I grew up here and my whole life I was taught that I was a second generation migrant. This was from school, it was from media, everything. And in, in the, the, the run-up to the referendum, I was having a conversation with my dad about these sorts of issues. And suddenly he collects, you know, he collects everything. And so he had these old passports. Every old passport of mine was a British passport. Every old passport of his was a British passport. Every old passport of my grandfather was a British passport. And it was no different from the passports of people here. And that made me think, well, actually, when my family moved here, they didn't move here as migrants, because to be a migrant, you have to cross a border between states. My family moved within British Empire. So in the same way as you might move from York to London and not be considered a migrant for doing that, they moved from the Punjab to Nairobi to London, and every movement was within the imperial state of Britain. They moved as British citizens. So the fact that I continue to be called a migrant is truly problematic because what I am is a citizen who happens to be a bit darker. And not to recognize that, I think, is a consequence of our failure to understand that British history is actually an imperial history. There is no national history of Britain. The only history of Britain that will enable us to make sense of Britain today is if we were to understand the imperial history of Britain. Jason, we should come to you. So Gaminda has set out very clearly the sort of historical uh, background. Talk to us about the teaching of empire in schools. I said earlier, I was taught more about the Roman Empire than the British Empire. And I know that may not be wholly representative of what happens today. But how much teaching of empire is there in schools at the moment? What, what, what do we know about that, uh, the teaching that goes on? So the simple answer is we know very little. Um, that's partly a reflection of the state of schooling or secondary state schooling in this country is so fragmented. So we have a national curriculum, but academies and free schools do not have to follow a national curriculum. Then you also have within the history curriculum a, a series of suggested topics, but you don't have... Empire is not one of those necessarily. It's, a, it's not a statutory requirement. The only topic that's a statutory requirement under the national curriculum is the Holocaust. So it's not part and parcel of... Under the, the history bit of the national curriculum. Under the history bit yeah. of the national curriculum. So it, it, it's not there in terms of a statutory requirement. The problem is, because of the dispensation and the autonomy schools have got to follow and determine their own curriculums, we know very little about the way in which, you know, empire is taught within schools. So we've got some small-scale pieces of research, like, for example, Terry Hayden, who's at the University of East Anglia, has done some work about how empire is taught in British schools. And he says, talk of its absence is overstated. The problem is to do with the framing that Guminda's talking about, that actually it's seen as a separate entity. The other two things that Terry says about his encounters with empire and school curriculums is the other factor is that very little is done. So it's there, but very little is done in terms of decolonization. So we don't really encounter empire when we talk about the process of decolonization. So again, it's something that's put kicked much back into the past, the 18th century and things like that. So very little done on, on that. And equally, very little done on terms of how that past impacts on our present. And, and that's sort of not, not done at all. So if you teach it as something that happens around the world, but not actually impacts on these islands, then I think you, you get a distorted sense of, yeah, exactly what Grimminder's talking about in terms of empire. And, and what is that sense? How, how is empire viewed in this country and how much does what's happening in education feed into that? Well, and again, we, we, the problem is we know very little. So we've got work, uh, Adam Burns, who's a researcher, who's done some work in young people. So we've got some headline figures. There was, there was a recent YouGov survey that talked about uh, people's sense of pride in empire. and it, Quite high, including was, among young people. It was it, it, quite high, including by young people. The other thing that Adam would say, and this is, you know, talking myself out of a job, but Adam would also say that 
the research he did with young people is that most of their ideas of empire come less from schools and more from their encounters through social media, through their families, through their localities, and all of those different dimensions as well. And actually, if we're going to be effective in the teaching of empire, we need to take account of the ways in which they encounter empire outside of the school, rather than just simply saying, well, come in, we're going to ignore the types of frameworks that you're working with, and we're just going to tell you this about the empire. Uh, and so I think that's another sort of problem. We, we don't know very much, but what we do know is that family and home are more likely to be influential than two lessons of history a week. Govinda, you want to come in? Yes, just to say, I mean, Richard Drayton, who's professor of history at King's, he wrote an article a few years ago in which he talked about the fact that the majority of histories of empire that have been written by white British historians don't make violence central to the story of empire. Now, when you look at the map that was up there earlier, there is no way that empire can be created or maintained for 200 years without violence and plunder being central to the story. And until very recently with books by David Anderson and Caroline Elkins, who talked about the gulag in, in, in Kenya and, and, and so on, until those two historians, no white British historian of empire has ever made violence central to their narrative of empire. Or, or, or even, I mean, another, another dimension, if you look at textbooks, school textbooks, there were uh, six textbooks that were published last year, which all had empire in it. So again, empire was present in those textbooks, but they're siloed off. So there's no relationship between empire and the Industrial Revolution, as if they're two separate. So we have the Industrial Revolution as a result of innovation, lots of water and some coal, but nothing to do with, you know, colonial markets, colonial labour, and those sorts of things. It's seen as separate entities and not taught in an integrated or interconnected sort of way. Now, there is a GCSE module on, the, on migration and empire. Is that, that's right, isn't it? Is it 5% of people take? We're talking about 4% of the... So, history's a reasonably popular subject at GCSE. So, 38% of students yeah. take history. And then... Not all the exam boards offer this migration and empire unit. In fact, the biggest exam board, Pearson, doesn't offer it. So we're talking, we're talking about 10,000 students of the 250,000 students. And what do they, as a matter of interest, as a sort of litmus test for what is taught, what do they learn about empire? I mean, is that a balanced curriculum? What does it, is it the, the, the arc of empire? Does it include the violence that Gaminda is talking about? What, what, what's the... I think there, there is scope to teach about the violent episodes, but there's also scope. They talk about, you know, Nkrumahs in one of the, the, the things. So I think that's also an important point is actually they talk about decolonization. Just explain for people who don't know. Well, just they talk about nation building post-empire and how states in Africa like Ghana, you know, went about that particular process. And, and that, that's kind of... So those figures have a place within some of those boards' explorations as well. But, yeah, the violence, you know is there, but I, I don't, yeah, it's so, difficult. So, look, you've given us a sense of the history. Jason has given us a sense of what is taught, and it's very, very patchy at best. What, in your view, is the consequences of this? Well, on a very personal level, there are consequences around. So, again, you know, to bring it to contemporary times, in the period after the Brexit vote, any number of my white English friends suddenly started telling me about all these passports they were going to get, Irish passports, Swedish passports, German passports. And I said to them, but, but you're English. And they were like, yes. I was like, well, how can you get these passports? They're like, oh, well, you know, my mother's Irish or my grandparents were German or, uh, you know, somebody else was Swedish and so on. It's like, oh, so you're the child of a migrant. Have you ever been called a child of a migrant? They were like, no, I'm English. I was like, but me with my British parents and my British grandparents and my British great-grandparents still get called a migrant, but you, and the only reason you can get access to another EU passport is because you're the child of a migrant. So it's, ra- so it's sort English. of race, not place, really. It's race, not migration. Yeah. And I think that we've sort of hooked into this idea of migration and second-generation migrants and all that sort of stuff, when actually what we're talking about is the differential citizenships associated with empire. I mean, it seems to me, though, that, that part of that, that what you've said is must be right. And there's another part of it, too, which is, and maybe this is just sort of rather obvious, but if you have an airbrushed view of empire, in other words, it was a sort of civilizing, in inverted commas, project, which sort of, you know, was a great blessing to the world, then it's so much easier for politicians, including the current prime minister, to hark back to a sense of greatness, 
the sort of the uniqueness of the British nation and a sense of us against the world, isn't it? I mean, it, doesn't that stand to... I mean, isn't it, to be simplistic about it, isn't one of the reasons we've ended up where we've ended up is because we never really had a project of coming to terms, Jason, of coming to terms with empire. It, for, 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 for sort of bad and good, if that's not, again, too simplistic a way of putting it. I mean, you're talking about Brexit, aren't you? I know you yeah. don't want to say it. Yeah, no, I am. Uh, but but it, it's kind of, I mean, I think, I think it's too dangerous to put something like it's just down to the ignorance of empire. Because it's I think, definitely not just down to that, yeah, but it yeah, must yeah. be a contributory factor, I would but, have thought, in the background absolutely, and to think, self-perception but, but of history, us as a nation. But history and the stories that we tell ourselves, I think, is a vital part of it. And I think one of the things where sort of something like the history of empire and the history more generally comes together is particularly in the way it features in the narratives we tell around the First and Second World War. Because that kind of, at that point, that idea of English exceptionalism, that idea of sort of, you know, we stood there alone and, you know, fought back the Hun and that sort of stuff, that it neglects the contribution that was made across the globe because of the legacy of the empire. I think here's a real sort of way in which you then have a myopia, you have a particular vision, and it prevents you from seeing that actually we were never alone, and actually maybe if we weren't alone then, we still need to be connected now. Just, just one bit of context. When we joined the European community as it was then, European Economic Community in 1973, how, how much of empire remained? Not, still quite a lot of it. Still quite a lot. I mean, particularly within Africa. And, and Hong Kong and other parts. So of, even uh, then, you'd say we hadn't become a sort of nation state in a conventional no. sense. No. So we've never really known what it's like to be no. a nation state, sort of on your own in inverted commas. No. So in a sense, all the debates that occurred around reclaiming national sovereignty prior to the referendum were about reclaiming something that we had never had because we'd always been an empire. Britain has always been an empire. There may have been a national project within the imperial state, but the state has always been imperial. And one consequence of this is that I think it's that imperial legacy that doesn't enable us to understand what it means to be one amongst equals. So when Britain joined the EEC, it had to operate in a transnational federation as one amongst equals. Britain had always led the empire, it had always led the commonwealth and for me my sense is partly that the resentment by the British elite to Europe is partly fueled by that fact of not wishing to be one amongst equals. Are there examples of other countries which perhaps have a difficult history that have done a better job of, of telling their story? I mean, I think we can look to Germany, for example, and in part we also have to recognise that it was only because Germany lost the war that it was forced to reckon with the immediate history that had produced the war and what had been produced as a consequence of the war. And so whilst that, I think, has been incredibly good in terms of providing the context within which some sense of, of, of a reckoning with the immediate past could have occurred... The one disappointing aspect of that is that in 1905, German officers, who then went on to be part of the, the Nazi army in the 1930s, committed a genocide in southwest Africa of the Herrera Nama people, where they effectively wiped out the whole population. And so the first genocide committed by Germany was not on German soil. It was in southwest Africa, only about 40 years prior to the Holocaust. And yet there isn't really a huge amount of work being done to bring that into the same sort of frame. But in, in as much as that reckoning has been done, how, how have they done it? I think partly it's been about making it mandatory in schools that students learnt about what the German recent past was about, what was done, to face up to the horror of it. And I think it's, it's sort of interesting that the only component within the history curriculum here is the Holocaust, is because in a way, if we can exceptionalise what happened in Germany, the rest of Europe gets off scot-free from its own complicity in the elimination of peoples in the Americas, in Australia, in Tasmania, in New Zealand, in Canada. I mean, the whole British Empire was built on the elimination of indigenous peoples. So that takes us, Jason, to what we should do. Uh, I, mean, I mean, the Holocaust can also then also be a, a, a blueprint for what we could do as well, but as well as making a topic like the empire migration to be mandatory on the curriculum, you've also got to be careful for what you wish for, because that doesn't necessarily mean to say it will be taught well. So you also need to support teachers in their teaching of that. And that's where, so 
you know, when the Holocaust was made mandatory in the curriculum in 1991, uh, uh, the Pears Foundation that was, you know, sort of saying, well, well, so what? You know, what, what's it, what impact has it had in terms of young people's understanding of anti-Semitism, for example, or things like that? So he put a whole load of money into researching what impact this type of teaching was having, as well as researching what children's understandings were coming in from home and locality and stuff like that. Gordon Brown then match funded it so that we've now got this center for holocaust education that draws that that's empirically based that's the first thing so we so when i answered your question i i didn't really know despite trying to do a lot of work about how it's taught in schools they've got a much more embedded sense they did a, a survey at eight thousand young people two years ago a really clear sense of what what young people understand by anti-Semitism. That helps inform professional development for teachers because we know what are the pertinent issues to take on board. The other, the other key dimension of the Centre for Holocaust Education is they work with his scholars in the field because the other thing about anything you look at in terms of empire studies is its dynamic field that's moving forward. The exemplar I'm offering is not simply about the topic of the Holocaust, it's about the approach that that centre takes to supporting teacher development. So, I mean, I'll, I'll give you other examples. So, for example, uh, this year, I mean, the Runnymede Trust, after they published, they did a, a set of resources called Our Migration Story to try and support teachers with their teaching migration stories. But providing resources isn't enough. I think we've got to recognise the context that teachers are working under, which is obviously diminishing resources, limited time, and often they've never studied empire. If, if what we're talking about is true, they've never come across the topic. So the point of the Centre for Holocaust Education is less about the exemplar of the Holocaust as, as a similarity. There are some similarities in the sense that there are sensitivities that I think are worth taking account of in terms of how you teach about violence in a classroom context, which I think is really important. But the key thing about the Centre for Holocaust Education is how it puts teachers into contact with academic scholarship that helps support their confidence in taking what is something that's a really sensitive and freighted topic into the classroom in a much more sustainable way. But how much is the Achilles heel of this uh, issue that there is such division in the, or at least in the elite of this country, about the impact of empire. In other words, you know, I don't know what he would say if he were here, but if Michael Gove were here, uh, which we weren't planning for anyway, he, he, uh, he, presumably he would have a different view about empire than, than both of you. I mean, in other words, is one of the reasons that we don't teach it because, because we can't agree about it? That's, that's a good thing in terms of history. I mean, history is about argumentation. It is about judgment and things like that. What we can agree on... Well, I, I, I can't speak for Michael Gove, I can't yeah. speak for Jacob's view. What we can agree on is that actually judgments about the past have to be rooted in evidence. So that's one approach that you begin I'm to I'm not take. sure Michael Gove would agree with well, that. Well, exactly, that's, uh, why, that's why I can't uh, necessarily uh, agree. I mean, you know, but the other thing that I just wanted to say is that I think that it's dangerous to go too far into the pluralist sort of line because I think there are things that we can agree on and that we need to agree on and that justice requires us to agree on historical processes that have produced the inequalities that shape our current world. And that one reason I think we don't properly tell the history of Britain is because it serves our purpose not to. Because the extent that if we believed ourselves to be committed to a just world and we believed ourselves to be committed to addressing the injustices that we have produced in the world, then there would be a serious amount of reparation that would be needed to be done and we would need to think about how we would enact that reparation such that we just decide that we're not going to think about it. Okay, uh, that's really fascinating. Let's go to the audience. What's your name? Uh, my name's Adam. Hi. I studied history at university, so this idea of you know, how we remember the past, I think, is inherently fascinating. Um, and one thing I wanted to ask the panel to consider was the fact of how we're surrounded everywhere in this country by physical reminders of empire. So whether it's you know, Nelson's Column or statues of Cecil Rhodes. That's really good And point. it mirrors the fact that in the southern United States, there's an ongoing debate about how do we address, you know, old yeah. statues of Confederate generals. So would you consider, you know, the taking down of those physical monuments, would that constitute an act of cultural vandalism? Or is that necessary to enable us to move forward? Or how do we reckon with, you know, the physical reminders of empire which are all around us? Hi, I'm Shinaz. I'm a history teacher. Where? I, uh, so I teach in Croydon. 
Great. Um, yeah, so I've just finished my training. Yeah, big round of applause. <laughs> right, I mean, you can tell us what it's really like. Yeah. I mean... Uh, so we teach, uh, so we have a two-year key stage three. So we teach history in year seven and year eight. And then the students pick whether they want to do history. And a lot of schools do that, but I know it's starting to move away from that because Ofsted is, it doesn't like that anymore. Um, so we teach um, the British Empire in year seven, right at the end of year seven. And it's a terrible scheme of work, but because of the conditions we're working in, it's just not a priority. So we're prioritizing GCSE. Um, and the point Jason made about teachers' professional development is really important because um, our Holocaust scheme of work is quite good and that's mostly because the teachers in the department, including myself, have been able to go to uh, the Centre for Holocaust Education and have training from it. Um, and that's been invaluable in informing our scheme of work on the Holocaust. Um, but even if there was something equivalent to the Centre for Holocaust Education, there's also this wider point of schools supporting teachers' to professional development and letting teachers go to these CPD training courses. Um, because without that, you're not going to have effective... But just to ask you the question, the thing you said at the end of year seven, the module or whatever it was mm -hmm. at the end of year seven, what is that like? You're saying that's good or bad? bad. It's terrible. It's really it's terrible. bad. Um, it's terrible. Kind of, it's kind of a legacy of the teacher who planned it, who left, um, and we just haven't prioritised it. We say all the time we're going to change it, but... Other... And, and it's terrible because it's... It, it, it's, it's just, it's not very good history. It's about why Britain wanted an empire. It's just, yeah, it's not really good. I'm kind of embarrassed every time I teach it. That's really interesting. Yeah. That's really interesting. Should we take a few more, Jeff? Just I'm conscious Any, of time. Anyone up there on the balcony? Uh, is there a microphone? Oh, there's a microphone. There's somebody at the front. Yep. These are great questions and comments. Hello, what's your name? Hi, uh, my name's Mike. Uh, my question is about how the empire shaped Britishness. Um, I heard Michael Fallon on an early question saying, Britain and the Union existed well beyond before the European Union and will survive long after. But, of course, we had the empire before that. So, in a post-Brexit world and a post-empire world, how does that affect kind of our, our sense of Britishness and can Britishness survive? Was there somebody else at the front? Just there on the... Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, Jason mentioned at the beginning that he was qualifying it by this is what's taught within the history subject. Do you think that empire can be taught and understood well, possibly through other subjects? I mean, through things like literature or geography or, or music or in, in other subject areas like that? What was your name? Oh, my name's Imogen. Imogen, thanks. So in relation to the statues, I think we have to ask ourselves what the purpose of statues are and what we want to do with them. I don't think we should get hooked on the statue debate, to be honest. I mean, the, the debate that happened in relation to the University of Oxford and the wishing to bring down the Cecil Rhodes statue, or at least that's the way in which was narrated in the media, the students who were involved with that weren't actually concerned about bringing the statue down. What they were concerned about was having a conversation about who Cecil Rhodes was and whether the university ought to unproblematically take the money and represent him as part of it. So if we think about what Cecil Rhodes did in South Africa and whether that was appropriate. We could also look at the example of other countries, Germany after the fall of the Nazis, the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, at the end of the, the, the invasion in Iraq and the tearing down of the statue of Saddam Hussein. It's not as if statues haven't been taken down when they've represented ideologies that we come to regard as abhorrent. The idea that we don't regard empire as abhorrent, I think, is one of the problems. For me, thinking about our past has to be understood in terms of the structures that create the present. So none of us in this room are responsible for the inequalities that empire created. And all of us in this room benefit from those inequalities. So then the question is, how do we orient ourselves to those structures that continue to produce and reproduce inequalities from which we benefit? Do we wish to dismantle those structures and create different ones? And what would that look like? And that's a responsibility that I think we can all have. And it's a way to think about our past. I mean, you're saying that these are difficult histories. But on one level, they are histories, but they're histories with legacies. So we should step away from this idea of blame or shame and just think about it in terms of justice and redistribution distribution, what would a just redistributive policy that wasn't a national social democratic project but was a social democratic project look like for the present? 
And how could we take that forward? So in that sense, for me, thinking about colonialism is not to think about it as identity, but to think about it as structure. And so in that sense, but to ask the question of what it means to be British in light of empire is to understand that the very reason I continue to be understood as a migrant and not as a citizen is because of a particular understanding of a racialized hierarchy that was instituted through empire, which had white Brits lead the empire and others be dominated by empire. And that colonial relationship continues to be played out in the present through a racialized hierarchy that sees me as a migrant and not a citizen and sees my citizenship as provisional. So the cases that we've had recently in relation to Shamima Begum or the others who are British citizens, but we've decided that their citizenship is provisional. Or Windrush, presumably. Yes, absolutely. And yeah. Windrush isn't just about the Caribbean. That's also one thing to say quite, uh, to underline is that Windrush actually refers to everybody from the entire Commonwealth. It's not just, so the people who are being affected by it come from Bangladesh, from Nigeria, from Ghana, from Sri Lanka, not just the Caribbean, and we're not hearing their stories. We have to understand our past if we're going to be better than who we were in the present. Just alighting on the wind, I mean, the other, the other thing I find fascinating about Windrush is, is that it wasn't so long ago in 2012 that the Windrush generation was seen as emblematic as part of the Olympic ceremony. Yeah, so, and I think it opens, a, you know, because we are reasons to be cheerful, but there, it opens a sense that actually both the past and the present are contingent. They're dynamic. They're not fixed in this particular moment. And it also exemplifies how contradictory the, some, the, the, the thinking is around issues around race and stuff like that. That one moment you can have, you know, the nation, you know, applauding this representation, if you like, this story of Windrush, and then the next moment, like you say, their right to belong is being fundamentally questioned. So I think there's a lot of contradictions. There's, there's a danger of verifying a picture and sort of saying, it looks like this. And I think everything that we know about history in the past is that it's always changing. It's very dynamic, and that's also true of the present. And that opens up spaces. In terms of the question about other subjects, I mean, there is, I mean, English, I think, is a really important subject, and geography, in terms of actually opening up these types of agendas. And again, I'd put forward the idea that actually teachers need to work in more interdisciplinary ways to open up, because history, historical tools and concepts can open up so much, but they don't attend to sort of, a, if you like, the, the functions of narrative structure in the way that yeah, literary critics. So English, so there's a whole debate about English literature and what English literature gets taught in yeah, schools. Yeah, and, and that's and that's being massively marginalised in the same way that history is. So that the the, the, the Shaznaz was talking about the problems of the GCSE. That the, the imperative of the GCSE means that teachers are increasingly going to what I would call a grad grindian sort of knowledge rich curriculum that dispenses with ideas around the concepts and ideas that are, and not, well fundamentally about ideas because it's about passing the examination. And English colleagues are sort of saying. I haven't got time to pull, pull these texts into my curriculum because I'm going to be judged on the type of grade that these children get at the end of that, that particular curriculum. And in history, not only are we talking about content being problematically compromised in terms of issues like empire and migration being neglected or taught badly, we're also seeing the diminishing of concepts like interpretations and significance. So they used to be at the heart of the disciplinary concept of, of, a, of a history curriculum. So if you take significance in terms of the statues, you can have children like a New Zealand colleague of mine doing soundscapes of all the statues in Wellington about how, why are they contested? But if you're not dealing with the concepts of history, then you're not actually inviting students to actually engage with why does society put at different times significance on these individuals and these events? Or why does society neglect these individuals and these events? What, what do we read from our omission of empire and how that might open? Well, so I think concepts are as equally important as content. I mean, I was about to say, it isn't accidental that the, the empire is so... You know, that three people in the room had been taught. I mean, in other words, it's partly because presumably because it's contested and partly because there are people who don't want it to be taught because of it's the very negative history that you talked about, I mean, in the end. Well, I wouldn't put it as a... I mean, history... It is, it is our history. 
And if we don't understand our history, we won't understand sure. ourselves. Sure. And so in that sense, again, I wouldn't talk about it as good, bad, negative. It is what happened. It's produced the world we live in. If there are things currently that we don't like about how the world is organized, what is it that we need to do together to change it? Do you want to? Yeah, we, we have a thing on the podcast. It's called the Jeffocracy. I want to be absolutely clear it's not an empire. Uh, it's, it's a utopia. Are you I, sure you don't have I'm imperial I'm a supreme ambitions? leader, but I am not an emperor. Are you sure you don't have imperial Absolutely ambitions? Absolutely not. If, if I was to appoint you, I mean, I, at first I was thinking maybe Minister for Education, but then it sort of rolls in Culture Secretary. Maybe we'd need a new department. Yeah. Department for coming to terms with yeah. empire. Uh, to give us a reason to be cheerful to finish with, what is, what is the thing you would do on day one? I would teach modern British history as imperial British history or teach imperial British history as modern British history. And this idea that there is no way that we can understand who we are if we don't understand how we've been shaped by empire. Jason. And I would set up a centre to support the training of teachers to enable them to do that. It sounds good to me. Uh, look, really, uh, really fascinating discussion. Big round of applause for Gaminda Bambra and Jason Todd. You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Please welcome onto the stage, John Kearns. Look at him, isn't he lovely? Isn't he lovely? John, you're, you're a South London lad, aren't you? Yes, I grew up in uh, Tooting Beck. There we go. So have you spent but... nights here at the Clapham Ground then? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do tell. Yeah. It's not usually like this. There's a bar behind that curtain. Right. And you, d you dance down there. Oh, I see. What was the first popular music <laughs> that you first came to see here? Oh, no, I've, I've been to a club night here. Club night? A yeah, so conga? you just... Uh, hey? A conga? Have you done a conga here? Yeah, yeah, this is the place where congas happened. Yeah. We met at a wedding, didn't we? You were very drunk. Yeah, well, <laughs> you were leaving and I thought, you, you can't leave this wedding without talking to me. So I, uh, <laughs> I ran out and, uh, were you being collected by your wife? She was there. No, she was or there as well. <laughs> My hey? mum, yeah, I was being clutched by my mum. No. Oh, well, uh, she, uh, I just remember someone trying to drag you away from me. Yeah, that's I, because you was... were very drunk. Actually, to be fair, I don't, I don't sort of remember being accosted by a drunken person. But you that, were drunk. Drunker than me? No, 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 I just don't remember. I, I, you I don't remember It wasn't all. a traumatic experience for Well, me. I was being very polite because oh, right. I, um, before I became a, a comedian, I worked as a uh, 
tour guide and in the education department of parliament between 2010 wow. and uh, 2014. Uh, late 2013, yeah. Wow. So if somebody here had a tour around the Houses of Parliament during that time, there's a chance you could have been the tour guide. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. Can well, you ask Ed, so Ed, how long have you worked in that building for? Like a long time, and I know so, fuck so can you all ask about Ed a history, simple I'm question, afraid. and we'll see if he gets oh it right. Oh my God. It's like worse than Empire, really. How is. many seats are in the House of Commons? Well, not 650. Well, 650, obviously, but not... There aren't 650. There isn't room for 650 people to sit down. Is that the question? How many seats are in the House of Commons? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, 427. Gee, interesting. <laughs> is that why? I never knew that. Yeah. Is that why so many people are standing up when it's full? Yeah. Yes. No shit, Sherlock. Yeah. Right? <laughs> uh, 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 only 427. There you go. Well, when it was rebuilt after it was yeah. after it was bombed, yeah. Churchill wanted to keep it intimate because he said it aided debate. He said, where we shape buildings, buildings shape us. Believe really they, want you to give me the tour. This is brilliant. Well, this... I mean, there's people there that, that, that yeah. do it as well. Maybe but, I should uh, go on a tour. <laughs> Maybe I should go on a tour. It'd be a bit weird for me to go on a tour. Though. It'd be weirder <laughs> for the other people on the tour. Yeah. I could yeah, get, it'd be strange. Yeah. I, could get some, I could get some selfies, though. Yeah. I mean, I think people would find it strange if I went on the tour. Yeah, yeah. But you, actually, you're quite right. You would enjoy Tri people asking Trial you for of selfies. Charles I was in Westminster Hall, correct? It was, yes. yeah. Yeah. There used to be a prison in Big Ben. Really? Yeah. Amazing. It's great. How often would you get a know-it-all on those tours who would try and correct you? Oh. Uh, well, there's, you know, there's a statue of, like, Thatcher in members' lobby. Yeah. Which, uh, it, it would just divide people, you know. And, and, and also people think because they, uh, well, they do pay for the building, they, um, they felt that they could kind of just walk around and you're not allowed to sit down in the House of Commons and all that, and, you know, they... Well, I paid for it, so they'd start lying down, and you're like, Jesus Christ. People start lying down. <laughs> well, you know, they just kick off. <laughs> wow. And on your last day, did you tell a load of lies <laughs> on the tours? <laughs> well, yeah, there's, lo there's, like, there's loads of lies about the, uh, a tennis ball being found up in Westminster Hall's roof because Henry VIII played tennis in there. And Not all true. That. Not true, no. Mm. Or uh, J.K. Rowling taking inspiration from it, as it's very... It's very Hogwarts, which, you know, you tell the little kids that, but it's a bit depressing when adults believe that. You, know? mm. <laughs> you brought some ideas which could, which could be reasons to be cheerful. Treble really? MP salaries. Really? Yeah. Why? Well, I'd, you know... Get, get better quality MPs. Yes. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Might be an idea. Well, like... <laughs> Obviously, you'd want to raise people like, you know, teachers and nurses. Obviously, their wages would have to go up as well. But I think if you made the role of an MP, which is a very hard job, I don't, I don't, see, why the, I don't see why there should be any shame in making it a desirable one, a desirable job. But what about the argument that people would do the job anyway if they... You know, if, if they felt driven to, because that applies to nurses, doesn't it? They're poorly paid, but people still become nurses. And it doesn't affect the calibre of the people becoming nurses. I think you should sort of want to do it. And you get paid 75 grand. I mean, it's pretty good salary, don't you think? Well, then why does someone like Boris Johnson have to try and earn 10 times that? Uh... <laughs> Good question. I mean, he doesn't need... To, well... Yeah. I don't know. What, what do you think? Yeah, I, I'm not convinced. Um, but let's put it to the people. We've never rejected an idea before, I don't think. So I sort of feel... Well, it's a sort of soft rejection. Is, well, what, what do the people think? Do All those in favour? Mm. God. John, I feel really bad. It's like we've turned the audience against you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll get them back. You get fined 20 quid if you don't vote, like in Australia. Ooh. Interesting. Because they do, that's the thing in Australia, that if you don't vote, it's $20. Oh. 
We've never done compulsory voting, have we? No, we haven't, yeah. What do you think about compulsory voting? It's, it's just sort of free will the argument against it. It's people's right to vote, but it's people's right not to vote as well. Although you have got a right not to... You can spoil your ballot you paper. You can spoil it, yeah. Does it work in Australia? It sort of more or less does, doesn't it? I think it does, yeah. But I wonder if it would affect the... Sort of proportionally, I wonder if it would affect the vote at all, or if you go above... Well, they just elected number. a right-wing... I mean, they just re-elected but a But I mean, if you government. go above a certain number statistically anyway, it's just sort of replicated. Do you see what I mean? What do you mean? I mean that there's always going to be a percentage. In, in, you see it in um, research. That's why when they do opinion polls and market research, they don't need to ask everybody because they can just ask a yeah, certain sample. It tends sample. to be people who would be more left-inclined who tend not to vote, supposedly. Why is that? Just because of poverty? And mm, I guess, yeah. Like I don't know. Time. Where do you sit on uh, 16-year-olds voting? Definitely for 16-year-olds oh, yeah, yeah. voting. Yeah. Definitely for 16-year-olds. I agree. Right, okay, yeah, you've won them back with compulsory voting. All right. Witness protection for all. Yes. Yes, that's what I want. Yeah, so you're just, you're having a bad day. Yeah. You text the number. (laughs) You meet on a prearranged street corner. Yeah. Bundled into a van. Kicked out of the van in, like, I don't know, Portsmouth. You get given a passport. You're James... Uh, Theroux yeah for a week you run a B&B yeah <laughs> bliss how's Portsmouth going to cope with the with, yeah, with the that is the, the thing it, it's only Portsmouth only Portsmouth yeah, yeah. so that is quite interesting so witness so you get to be somebody else just for a week yeah, only know, for a week just for a week is it kind of extendable no you've got to go back Right. Yeah. What would you think of that? I like that. Oh, I love it. I mean, it's a shame you have to go back. Well, well where would you like to? Who would you like to be, and where would you like to go? Just not me, and not here. Ah. <laughs> uh, go on. No, seriously. Where would you? Where, what's your sort of dream identity? <laughs> what's your dream identity? <laughs> I mean, apart from your good self, of course. <laughs> well, we look. We look pretty. I don't know how old you are. Uh, 46. Right, I'm 32. Yeah. All right, you don't need to rub it in, yeah. How old are you? Uh, <laughs> uh, older than him. Yeah. <laughs> we could swap, and I don't know. I'd, I'd swap with you. Yeah. I mean, I think my life would be bleak. I wouldn't wish it on anybody. Oh, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> He's what sitting would, right what here. What would yours be? I don't know, what actually. What would yours be? I don't know. Prime Minister? Yeah, maybe that's good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you very much. Talking about making me feel bleak. Uh... Yeah, what would you... So witness protection, you could go... And you could you be just, any you just for a week. New life for a week. Where, where do you like going on a holiday in, in the UK? Is there anywhere that you really... Mm, I went to Scotland last year. I really liked going to Scotland. Thurso, do you know Thurso? You can go there for, for a week. Just, just And pretend to be like... But you're very recognisable. Mm, I know. That is an issue. Get a wig or something, a wig. See, somebody sat next to me on the tube the other day and wondered if I was... Had said, she turned to me and said, has anyone ever told you you look a lot like Ed Miliband? <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was a nice way of putching it. What did you say? I said, I am him, actually. And you she said went, you were. She, she, said, she said, oh, I'm not interested. Uh, <laughs> no, no, she was, she was, uh, she was, uh, she was nice. Actually, they had this other thing on the tube, which is that, I'm afraid this does, this was quite depressing. I didn't tell you this, actually, but you reminded me of a sort of bleak thing. I saw a guy, it was quite a packed tube train, and I saw a guy saying to his daughter, like, it was just like, sort of half a carriage away, it was in the same carriage, saying to his daughter, yeah, yeah, they're brothers, yeah, but both of them were in politics, yeah, I can't remember his name, Tories, definitely Tories. <laughs> <laughs> that was sort of bad. And I kind of thought, shall I? And then I, I deliberately got off the train by kind of rather oddly going past him, <laughs> hoping to sort of jog his memory. And he said, difficult time for you, eh? He said. <laughs> and I kind of tapped him on the arm and said, yeah, thinking, oh, shit, I can't, that's, I can't sort of, I couldn't say, no, I'm not a Tory. It was just too much explanation. Uh, there you go, witness protection. I am really into that policy. Yeah, witness protection for all. Yeah, and everybody then, needs witness protection. And you got one last one. Well, Red plaques. Ooh. Right, so... <laughs> right, you know blue plaques? Yeah. 
So it's a red plaque. Yep. If the house, say in London, yep. is worth over two million quid, yep. it says who lives there. <laughs> Interesting. This is like the Norway. This is—is is it Norway where you have to pub Everyone publishes their salary online. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. It's, it's sort of like Norwegian. That. And then if it lights up, they're in. <laughs> <laughs> and and what is the rationale behind the policy? I just I I nosy. Well, I'm really nosy, and I live uh, I, I I live in Highgate. Now I've got very. Uh, I live on the Archway Road, which is like the A1. So it's. Uh, it's. I don't live in the posh part, but there are so many houses there that are extraordinary in their size, and I just think, who the hell lives in them? Yeah. So I just. I'd, I'd love to be able to be like. Like I didn't know George Michael lived in this amazing house until he passed away, and I was like, I, I just. I, I just would have liked knowing he was in there. <laughs> so it's like a sort of. It's like a blue plaque, but for people who are alive and living there. It's a red plaque. Yeah, but it's, it's not blue. <laughs> it's a red plaque, and it just says who's there. Yeah. And uh, whether they're in. Yeah, whether they're in. You know, like the Queen has the different flags if she's in. It's just a bit like that. John Kearns, thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming tonight. Yeah, should we thank our guests? Uh, I'd like to thank Gaminda Bumbra and uh, Jason Todd. Big round of applause for them, please. And the wonderful John Kearns. Woo! He's been Jeff Lloyd. He's been Ed Miliband. And these have been reasons to be cheerful. Yeah.